Well, it's good to be with you here this morning. How are you guys doing? Good. It's looking like we have a full house here today. If you're at the back and you do want to see, we do have seats up the front, different places. I know they are squished together. You really have to love your neighbor if you're sitting arm to arm with somebody here at Oceanside. But God told us to love our neighbor, so sit close together. Does that translate? Well, I don't know. You don't seem too thrilled about that. But uh, something that we are thrilled about is we had a new addition to the church last week. Uh, Camilla, why don't you introduce our little baby? She's, oh, you got to. This is Naomi Grace Arnold. <laughs> Naomi Grace Arnold. <laughs> Currently sleeping within her carrier, uh, within uh, the, ba- the baby carriage, whatever that thing is there. Can you tell I haven't had any sleep? There you go. Perfect. It's going to be a fun sermon here this morning. If point four or five comes after one, we'll be doing good. We'll be doing good. No, but uh, we have been so tremendously blessed by our church family here. Uh, we're explaining to our kids as, as food turned up as a, at our door, you know, on uh, different evenings uh, this past week of just like, actually, we get to do this because we have a wider church family than, than just our own family, and people love us and support us. And I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart to the eldership team, the other leadership teams that we have here. Uh, we thought this baby was going to come in early February. All signs were pointing to then, and then it, then it came in late February. So a special thanks to my amazing wife, Camilla, who has carried all our our kids beyond where they should be into that term, so appreciate that. And almost 10 pounds, almost 10 pounds, can you believe it? Uh, but yes. So today we are continuing in a series on uh, this topic of becoming like Christ. And I know for some of us that's like the answer to everything at Sunday school. Jesus, the answer is Jesus. Is the answer Jesus, sir? Yes, it is. The answer is Jesus, that's good. Um, but, but really, in, in the Christian faith, is if, if there's one thing that we're supposed to be doing while we're here, like before we go see Jesus face to face when that day comes, is that we are slowly and steadily wanting to become like our master, like Jesus, like he walked and displayed. So it's been great to go through this series, and we've been doing it so it's since the beginning of January, of what does it mean to be Jesus while we're here on the earth? Um, being a Christian isn't about just saying, Christ is my Lord and he saved me and I'm going to be with him one day. Actually, being a Christian is following Jesus. And you know, like if you follow a football team or a soccer team or any sort of team, what, what do you put on? You put on the outfit, you go to the games, you, you pick up a hockey stick and you're pre- you pretend that you're that person as much as possible, um, even though your skills sort of let you down. But we are to look to put on the clothes of Jesus Christ. And we've done a, 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 yeah, thank you to the other people who've been preaching. In the last three weeks, we've looked at, you know, Nathan looked a few weeks ago about temptation. Then Paul led us through prayer. Wes, last week, led us through repentance, the topic of repentance, because if we are going to become like Jesus, guess what? We actually need to repent of our current failures and the things that we feel drawn to and actually turn towards Jesus so that we can become like him. And today, I just want to shift our gears, and I I don't know if it's because the baby has come along and this is what I'm thinking, but today I, I want to preach about our human limitations and I think maybe a part of that was this baby coming up um, that in our lives. I'm just like, man, a, a baby coming along, if you've ever had one, it's a blessing. Everyone here has been one at one time. 
Uh, you were raised up, and it's, it's actually crazy to think that as actually you walk around the city or something like that, you actually think, wow, everybody at one point was this little infant child that two irresponsible parents had to raise up. And uh, you, you realize that the grace of God to, to have a flourishing uh, world like this is, is, is an awesome thing. But when we go through a season like that, you know, we find our limitations Pretty clear, even the hospital staff, we're on baby number three, but, but still, before we left the hospital this week, they were reminding us about the purple booklet. Do you guys know what the purple booklet is? There's someone, Nate, you don't know what the purple booklet, well, you're laughing already, that's great, that's awesome. The purple booklet is basically how not to shake your baby, right? And it's a funny thing, but it's not a funny thing if you're a parent because you realize in those first three months, and the reason why the hospital staff is reminding of you this is because as a new parent, you're going to come face to face with your limitation of comforting a baby at a certain point. You're going to come face to face with the absolute end of everything that you do. You've ticked all the boxes, you've fed everything, and then they've spat it all out again. You know, they pooped, you've cleaned it up, everything. And basically, their best advice is once that happens and you just cannot take it anymore, you put the baby down in a safe space and you walk away. Get away from the baby. That's the one point in parenting where you're supposed to leave the baby because at that point you've become the end of yourself and you don't want to enter past that, past that stressful situation. And it's real being a parent. We haven't got to that. But when I see a new young dad in the church, I just, they're in that sort of first week where, you know, baby's just drinking milk and getting sort of milk drunk and then goes sleeps and eats and sleeps and eats. And, and then, but Man, in the ramp up to three months, you know that that, that dad is going to start to look more tired. That mom is going to start to look more tired as they, they come up against this baby with all its limitations. And it's funny to, to think of this thing because, man, God, it's, it's funny to you know, enter into being new parents again uh, as we lead the church. A child is a blessing. Leading the church is a blessing. So blessing plus blessing, right? Or blessing times blessing, that's blessing squared, right? Like this should be easy, this should be great. But we realize that actually God has put things in our lives and he has limited us in such ways and actually that is normal. But it really goes against what we like to do as a culture. Man, in the West, if you go from the West and you go, you say to the Middle East, you're, you're gonna find a wildly different time culture. In our world, especially since the advent of the internet, the clocks and all this other stuff, man, we are productivity driven. Would that be right? Who is like productivity driven here this morning? Nice. I, I, I feel like we're not putting up our hands there because it's, it's something to be proud. But if you're a productive person in our society, if every moment of the day is accounted for and calendared out and color-coded, if you wake up at 5 a.m. and go to bed at 11 p.m. because you're still working, man, you are celebrated in our culture, right? You are celebrated in our culture. I remember when apps first came out on the, the iPhone, and man, I downloaded, I wanted to be that productivity person. I wanted to be good, I wanted to be organized, I wanted to be administrative, I wanna, wanted to account for every hour of the day, make my day serve me rather than the other way around. And I remember every, every probably two weeks I would download a different productivity app, that this one was gonna finally teach me how to follow a task list and how to organize my day. And now I just use Apple Notes because pretty much that's the only thing that can help me, just keep on writing things down. But who can attest to that? Who, we always try new things that we want to get, get going on. 
But the reality is, is this modern way of living in, in production, in making use of every moment of the day, as much as that is a good thing, it's actually not been the normal thing for a, for a long, long period of time. Quiz for you here this morning, and I'm going to have to look at my notes. I can't even remember what I wrote down this week. But when was the light bulb invented? Can anybody remember that? Anybody know? School All the school kids are out of the room, the ones who might know it. This is terrible. 1812? Not quite. 1879. 1879. Perfect. Well done. Good listening. That's great. But in 1879, we got, and not even we got, but there was an invention, the electric light bulb, that meant that we could have light at any time during day or night. How many years ago was that? If you do the math, it's 144 years ago, we entered into this realm of electricity and sort of the very beginning parts of modern day living. 144 years ago. If you calculate 144 years compared to when Jesus lived 2,000 plus years ago, that means we've been living the last 7% of humanity since Jesus, not even since Abraham. It's more like 2 or 3% if you look at Abraham, and then there's even more beyond that. But if you look at the last 7% of humanity, we've been living in the modern era of this technology. And it's changed the very essence of who we are. Because it used to be, when the lights went out, you went out. I was listening to a podcast recently on the early church fathers, and they said, yeah, a lot of people, a lot of like spiritual leaders today feel convicted when they look at the early church fathers because they got up at 5, 5 a.m. to study the Bible and all this other stuff. So now if you're a good Christian, you wake up at 5. You read your Bible before your, your messy kids wake up and all of that stuff. But then this podcast was reminding us like, yeah, but they, they got up at 5 a.m. because they went to bed at 8 p.m., and they actually got way more sleep than you were getting because they didn't have a light bulb. They, they went to bed when the sun went down. 144 years ago, 1901, we got the radio. So you could tune in to something. 1927, we got the tw television. 1957, we got spaceflight. 1974, we got the personal computer. And the internet came along at the same time. You can see the fractions of life that humanity has been living with these things are actually very tiny compared to the bulk of human existence. And in 2007, we got the iPhone. We finally got the thing. The BlackBerry was, you know, the death had rung out for the BlackBerry, and now we're on the iPhone. And in 2017, now we've got AI as well. And who's been playing at ChatGPT to cheat on all their homeworks and essays and stuff like that? Man, you need more hands up in this room. It can do wondrous things for you in your homework. I'm very fortunate that I wasn't at school during that time because I am a procrastinator, and that would have been very appealing to me. What I want to point out to us today is that actually this slim percentage of living that we've been living in this modern era, it's not normal. It's not the way it once was. It's, it's not the way we were created to be sort of in the Garden of Eden when, when God first breathed life into humanity. Busyness has changed. We think that we can work at any point during the day. Even me last night, I had my laptop open at 10 p.m. last night, just going over notes, adding different things here and there. Actually, pre-light bulb, pre-laptop, I wouldn't have been able to do any of that. It would have just been lights out Andy, wake up for church the next day. And I'm not saying this to say 
that these things are bad. Actually, I think these things are amazing, and I'm a techno geek. I listen to like, all these podcasts about technology and what's happening with AI, and I'm excited and terrified all at the same time. It's marvelous. Um, but you can think if you listen sometimes from a Christian perspective, you can, you can get a sense that all this technology is bad. And I don't want to say that because actually the, the reason that all these things have been created is because of the very thing that God put inside of us. He actually put creativity inside of us. Who's a musician here this morning who, likes, who can play an instrument? Yeah, many musicians. You're, you're, you're musical because God put that inside of you. If you're an engineer and you love to create and you love to invent, God put that inside of you. If you're a cook and you like to put different ingredients together, man, I am not on any of these lists, but if you're one of those creative people, actually God put that inside of you. When it says that we were created in the image of God, actually our desire to make new things comes from that, from that being made in the image of God. But we know that as we live in a fallen earth that sometimes that creation that we've created now takes its place of creator God. We get busy in the things that we've invented, we get busy in the things that we've done, and now we don't have a lot of time for the things that he actually created us for. We think about the busyness of life, and man, if, you're a bit, if you, you know, work in business or you're a student or something like that, if someone asks you how your week been, we've said this many times before, but the default answer for you is to say, I'm busy. And that's like a badge of honor that's been like, yeah, I'm busy, life's going well, I'm making use of every moment because I feel stressed and worried all the time. Isn't that marvelous? No, not quite at all. I was listening to someone else recently and it was this professor at a Bible school and they were sort of talking about some of this as well. And they had a, uh, a theological student come to the professors one day, and, and the student listed off all the things that the professors were teaching them to do. You know, have devotional time, have prayer time, have worship time, you know, don't just rush through your meals, but actually eat meals together, all this other stuff, study all these things. And the student came to the Christian professors and said, this is not possible. The life that you have laid out for me to follow to get through this course is actually the most unchristian thing that I could ever think of because I'm studying on a Sunday instead of being with God. I can't make time for meals. You know, every moment of the day has to be accounted for to get through these courses and credits. Even in our Christian life, we can go into this overzealous, overproductivity life cycle of making sure that we use up every piece of meat from the time bone. And I believe actually today that, you know, Humanity, we sort of live between these, these two moments in time. We get a glimpse of, glimpse of God's creation in the Garden of Eden where he made man, man and woman. He created Adam and Eve, and he created ways for them to be and to work the earth. He didn't, he created work. Work comes from God. And then we look to heaven as well, and we wonder what will life be like in the new heaven and the new earth during, after the resurrection, and we, we have to think about that because that's indeed where we point all of these conversations. That's indeed why we talk about becoming like Christ because one day we're gonna be fully like Christ in the new heaven. But today we wanna become like that and we need to look at what does time management look like in heaven? I don't really know the answer to that. I know that there's still gonna be work to do. There's still gonna be responsibilities. There's still gonna be jobs to do. But chances are we're not going to run our calendars like we do today. Have you ever been stuck behind someone in traffic? Who's a really angry driver in the room here? Charles, yeah, I've been in a car with you. 
Actually, I've almost been run off the road with you, Charles, when you got your new car. It wasn't your, yeah, it was the other guy's fault, but it was because you did something too. <laughs> Love Charles. Yeah, I'm a bit of an angry driver too. And uh, we get angry in our drives because, you know, sometimes we get stuck behind someone who's not going the pace that we want to go. And usually it's, you know, the person who's angry, is, we're usually the ones who's going over the speed limit. Yeah, if they're going under the speed limit, all, all right to get angry at them. But usually we've got somewhere to be, we're late, we didn't time manage properly, and now we're stuck behind someone who's obeying the law and we can't go around them. Maybe you're familiar with something else, but who, have you ever lived with someone who goes at life a completely different pace to you? I remember when I was doing an internship for a church in South Africa, I lived with this guy, Neil, and like Neil had ADHD for like social things. And man, I wasn't, I'm like the introvert, all that other stuff. Man, it was different paces of life. It was an amazing relationship, but man, we were wired differently. But I do want to say like with the example of driving in the car or doing these other things, there's, there's a moment in time where you pull up or you get to pass that other car and you do the little side look over to see who has been holding you up. You get to live in the judgment seat of like, did that person meet my expectations for why they're holding me up? Little old lady, or, sorry, I just heard my name, which means I'm doing something wrong. Um, <laughs> but sometimes we do that, right? But it's interesting when we pull up beside the car and it's actually someone who didn't meet our expectations of why they're driving so slowly. The interesting thing for us is that you know, what would it be like to drive behind Jesus? Would he be a fast driver? Would he be a slow driver? <laughs> yes and no. If you're anything like me, some days you drive fast, some days you drive slow. On the way back from the hospital, man, I have never driven so slowly in my life again as I think, oh, I got a new baby in the car, it's snowy outside, there's ice on the road, man, and I was like judging people heavily. I was defensive driving to the max that day. But when it's my other two kids in the car, you know, the four-year-old and the five-year-old, I drive like a race car driver because apparently that's a good thing. No, it's not. But what would it be like to actually live alongside Jesus? What would his driving be like? What would the pace of Jesus? Who's ever been to sort of a country that doesn't operate like our country does? Who's ever been to a, a, a society that was more like Jesus' society that he, that he grew up in? I want to say that we need to be challenged in our, in our question of asking what is it like to become like Jesus. We do need to think of this thing of pace of this thing of interruption, of this thing of what are our priorities and what are our efficiencies. But the challenge is as well, it can be easy to start a sermon like this and, and, and give you a list of things to be ashamed about because you guys do too many things. But actually, Jesus, being the perfect example of a human, he was so productive, he was so intentional, and he was so relational in every moment. If you, if you peel through the Gospels, it only gives us snapshots of those, of those mainly those three years where he did his ministry. But we see this, this God, this man, who was intentional, who was productive in all the right ways. But we also realize that Jesus' life came through in seasons as well. 
we do like to talk about life in seasons. I, I looked online when, when Wes last week said that the baby had come a couple days before, and he, he said something like, oh, Andy and Camilla's life, they now have no life because of this new baby. And that's true. We're talking about a new season where a new baby, a new blessing comes along, and our life changes in a big way because of the time that we're up and the, the available time that we have. But Jesus as well acknowledged that his life, his ministry, came along in seasons as well. In John 2, before his ministry began, he was at a wedding, and he told his mother, he says, when he was asked to be sort of help the wedding out with sort of the amount of wine that they had to drink, Jesus said to her in John 2, verse 4, he said, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus was saying to his mom, he's like, yeah, I know I've got ministry to do here someday. I know there's going to be signs and wonders and all that stuff, but my time has not yet arrived. And in John 17, at the end of Jesus' ministry, Jesus, in the high priestly prayer, when he's speaking to his father, he says this in John 17, verse 4. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And in those two verses, we see the bookends of Jesus' ministry. The first one says, I'm, my time has not yet come. And three years later, Jesus says in his prayer, my time is done. What I, I have done, what I have accomplished, what I have set out to do. One commentator in commenting, in commentating about Jesus said, you know, Jesus left all sorts of things undone. He came to Israel, and Israel was living under the oppression of the Roman Empire, and he left Israel while Israel was still living under the oppression of the Roman Empire. He came to Galilean people who were living hand-to-mouth in poverty, and he left, and they were still living hand-to-mouth in poverty. He left behind a small band of people that were loyal to him and that were about to grow. But we see this in, in Jesus' life. You know, if, if we had left and those things, were if we expected the Messiah and we were still living under an occupied Roman Empire or we were still living in poverty, we would think that the job is not done yet. But Jesus said that I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So how was Jesus productive? This isn't a sermon to say, put away your phones, put down your calendars. We've, we've had those before, and, and, and God really does care about Sabbath in your life, and Sabbath is something that we do really poorly, but this is not what this sermon is about. This sermon is about how did Jesus, if Jesus was around here today, how would he live in our modern world? And the first thing I want to say is that Jesus was always effective with interruptions, is there any kindergarten teachers here today? No, you're all too worn out from the week. But don't worry, spring break is coming. But there's a special grace on kindergarten teachers that I drop my son off and I, and I see how he interacts with the kindergarten teacher. Man, that is distraction, interruption zone in that room. I wonder how they get anything done with kids coming with sideways ideas and all these other things. But most of us do not like to be interrupted. But if we turn to Luke 8, verse 40, we see Jesus ministering through interruptions. If you know the story, it's about a, a woman who touches the hem, the, the corner of Jesus' cloak as he's passing through a city. It says, now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. So this huge crowd, maybe the number of people that are in this room, and falling at Jesus' feet, 
Sorry, and then a man named Jarius, who was the ruler of the synagogue, fooled at Jesus' feet, and he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Jesus went, so Jesus started to go with Jarius, and the people pressed in around him. But then verse 43 says, and there was a woman who had, the dis- who had an issue with blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all of her living, um, spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately the discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus turned around and said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, somebody touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him and declared in the presence of all the people that she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. It's an interesting story because who can remember what happens next in that story? I don't know how many minutes that Jesus was talking to the crowd. Maybe it was 10 minutes. Maybe he was ministering to this woman for an hour. We don't know how long the conversations went. But at a period of time, some other people came back from Jairus' house and said, actually, your daughter has now died. Jesus has taken so much time to get to your daughter that your daughter has now died. You'd think that would be a disaster, you think that would be the worst possible thing, that Jesus actually made a mistake by, by turning around. The woman was already healed. Jesus didn't need to turn around and identify. He could have still gone, but instead he ch- chose to turn. But we know that when Jesus went to the house, that he brought that little girl back from the dead. What am I saying here? I'm saying that this is one example of Jesus time and time again being a very busy person. If we ask the question, were we busier than Jesus, it's probably a yes and no answer in terms of how much time of our day was spent busy and how much things that Jesus got done. But Jesus was an in-demand person. There is no doubt about it. Wherever he went, large swaths of people sought him out. So he was very, very busy. But Jesus was open to the interruption of the Holy Spirit. And even he felt it where he said, I felt this power go out from me. He was attuned to the spirit that was within him. And for us, we need to become like Jesus in this mode of operation. I sense in my own life that I go about my day with my laundry list of things that I've got to do, way too busy, way too charged, way too intentional with how I think my day should turn out. But I feel God challenged me as I was preparing this message, you know, we talk about the need for miracles. We pray for, for miracles of healing. We pray for miracles of provision. We pray for all of those things that, you know, are supernatural answers to prayer. But sometimes an answer to prayer in someone's life is just a believer being in tune to the Holy Spirit to hear what the Spirit is saying. How many times in your life has someone come into your life at the perfect time, at the right moment, and ministered to you in the right way? I want to say in this room here today that you might be the miracle to someone else's prayer. 
Jesus passing through that town, Jesus cloaked with other people. He was on his way to do something very good for the kingdom of God. But he turned, he stopped, because there was someone else who needed him. Norman Glazer says this, a miracle is a divine intervention and interruption of the regular course that the world produces. It's a purposeful but unusual event that would otherwise have not occurred. In our society, people stopping and taking time with somebody else is an unexpected, unthought of event that should not take place. And I believe Jesus is telling us to slow down, to listen, to look. I don't know if it's the same in this country, but in England growing up, there's this phrase that stays with me. And as we've been teaching our kids to cross the streets, sticking on the the road theme here, um, do you have the thing of stop, look, listen in Canada? Stop, look, listen, right? When a kid comes to the end of the road, you tell them to stop, you tell them to look, and you tell them to listen. And it's interesting when you go throughout the Gospels and you, you apply those three words to Jesus or you apply those, those words to the disciples as they, as they go out through the book of Acts and stuff like that. But Jesus knew how to be interrupted. And for us today, I want to say to you that becoming my, more like Jesus is stop, look, listen. A church that's not doing these things might be a very productive church in the natural but we might be missing the very easy things that Jesus is, is drawing in, who he's put with us today. How many of us in worship here today, when you were sitting in your rows, were stop, look, listen? That happens sometimes in church, right, where actually someone who, 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 who is spending time with the Holy Spirit might see someone across church and say, Ashley, I feel like I've got a word for that person. I want to say that that should be happening more in our community. What does stop, look, listen look like for us? Well, first of all, Jesus stopped. (laughs) He stopped in his tract when he perceived something. For us, this more looks like we just need to pray, church. We need to ask God for opportunities. We need to stop at intervals throughout our day and ask God for what might be happening next. We need to stop in our tracks from the busyness of life, from where we're going next, actually pause and wait on the Lord. The next thing we need to do is look. So much of our time, we we look where we want to go, right? Remember this, I was getting taught to ski or talk to snowboard at one point, and the instructor said, like, where you look is where you will go. (laughs) And even in sports, right, like where you Kick the ball is where you're looking, all those other things. We are, we are taught well on how to focus where we want to go. But the thing with ministry, the thing with Jesus, the thing with our world is that we don't actually know where we should be focused just yet until we look for opportunities that are around us. Jesus, in this interaction with this woman, he stopped and he actually searched her out. I want to say for us, we're so, so busy But if we stopped and we just looked when we were at the grocery store, we would perceive all sorts of things about people and how things are going. And then the third thing is that we need to listen. That actually, if we're stopping to pray, if we're looking, that actually the Holy Spirit wants to come alongside us and to tell us opportunities that are coming along. 
there's that story of Martha and Mary. If you know it, it's when, um, when Martha and Mary, two sisters, come along and actually Martha invites Jesus into the house. He's in a new town and, and she invites him into the house to spend time uh, with her family. And then she's rushing around doing all the things. She's invited this very important person to her house and then she's doing all these things. Maybe she's getting food ready. Maybe she's getting like, things cleaned up. I don't know what it is. And her sister instead chooses just to sit at Jesus' feet instead. And the sisters get upset at one another because the sister who invited Jesus in is angry at the sister who's sitting at his feet. And Jesus turns back to her and says, actually, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Mary chose to stop, look and listen and perceive that Jesus, the living God, was right there before her. In Galatians 5, we're encouraged that if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Jesus is the perfect example of what a believer would look like in keeping step with the Spirit. And it doesn't mean that we have to put the calendars down. It doesn't mean that we have to put the, the task sheets down. It, it actually means that we should do those things because we're called to be a productive people. Actually, there's parables in the Bible that tell us that actually production and growth is a good thing. But if we're not looking, if we're not listening for divine interruptions, we're going to miss the most productive things that we ever put our hands to. Who knows the parable of the seed? The sower, the parable of the sower. Matthew 13 says this, and Jesus again is teaching, I believe, on productivity and kingdom productivity. He says, and he told them many, many parables saying, a sower went out to sow and he sowed and some seeds fell along the path and birds came and devoured them. Other seeds, seeds fell on rocky ground and they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up and since they did, did not have any depth of soil, when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. And other seeds fell amongst the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. And verse 8, the fourth seed, other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Who has ears? Let him hear. Who has investments here? It's probably a few of us that invest our money in different ways, in different things. Are things in the red or are things in the green right now? I don't, I don't know. It depends what you're invested in. But a pretty good in investment, depending on what year you're in, if you get a 10% return for your investment, hey, that's, that's pretty good, right? Money in the bank just, just growing by 10%, that's a really good thing. And in farming as well, a farmer might, might expect some sort of threshold of reproduction, of production from the seed that he's sown. But at the end of this parable, Jesus says, the seeds that fell on good soil, some produced 100 fold. Some produced 60 and some produced 30. All of those things, way more than what those people would have expected for seed to be sown. And indeed, in our own investments that we put our hands to, if we could have a hundredfold investment, man, that we'd be rich. We'd be awesome. We'd be doing great. Jesus he wants us to be intentional with where we spend our time because he's got seed for us to sow for the kingdom that actually comes back a hundredfold. 
We live in the least church city in, in Canada. We know that. That's a well-established fact. Now, we need to be a church that is reaping the harvest, that is sowing the seed in good soil. We need to be doing the things of stop, look, and listen. But I was at coffee um, with this other church leader in town. He, you know, you might, some of you might know him, some of you might not. But we were sitting over coffee, and he was telling about how he teaches people evangelism. And he again shared something with me that was stupidly simple, like the stop, look, and listen. And he says, like, well, I teach people in evangelism. I teach them red light, yellow light, green light. And I'm like, okay, I feel like I'm at Sunday school. Good, this is perfect. But what do you mean red light, uh, yellow light, green light? He basically was saying this, is that when we come and when we're seeking kingdom opportunities, we encounter three different types of people. We encounter lots of people around our city that are in their spirituality, they are sitting at a red light. That if you come with the gospel to them, they are standing opposed. If you try and preach the good news to them, if you try and share a testimony, they are just, they are just a red light. How many of you like to sit at red lights? Nobody, right? My favorite thing is like getting to a red light and then timing it perfectly and then shooting through the green and hopefully no one is running the red on the other side. But no one likes to sit at a red light. And he said, but then you find some people who they're sitting at a spiritual yellow light. That actually you go to them with the gospel and you see that what you're saying, that they're like, they're like almost on the road. And then you encounter other people that they are sitting there with a the green light. Sometimes you share the gospel with people and they're just like, yes, I wanna know. Indeed, everybody sitting in this room here this morning who calls Jesus Lord and Savior has had a red light, yellow light, green light moment in their lives. We've passed through the green light and are agreeing that Jesus is Lord. But in our evangelism, in our sowing of the seed that Jesus is causing us to sow, we need to know this thing. Because Jesus wants us to be productive Christians. We spend so much of our lives yelling at the red light to turn green. <laughs> Does that work? It doesn't work. But it does work to say, turn the corner, move on from that red light, and instead find people who are ready to hear the gospel. I met up with this guy um, a couple years ago. He, he reached out, he was new to the city, he was going through a hard time. He was recovering from a bunch of different things and he had some knowledge of Jesus from, from, the, from like Sunday school growing up and we met up and we had coffee and we spent some time together a couple different times. But as I, as I sat there with this person, he was telling me like he wanted to know Jesus but he wasn't ready to hear anything of what Jesus might have him to do <laughs> in terms of getting out of it. He still had pride in his life in terms of, I could tell when he was telling me his testimony that actually he was still proud of those things that had happened in his life. And he still wasn't ready to become to repentance. He was sitting at that yellow light. And he's still someone in my life on my prayer list who I say like, Ashley, when is the right time to go back to this person to see if they're ready to move on through it? Jesus has good work for us to do. He wants us to stop, look, and listen. And he wants us to know people's hearts as well. Because if I think about the red light, yellow light, green light, is that Jesus always knew what was going on in somebody's heart. Indeed, the questions that he asked, the parables that he told, the responses that he got back, he, Jesus was very good at taking the temperature of somebody's heart and exposing what was within them. But I do want to say, church, there are awesome things that can happen in our city by knowing where people are at. 
you might be going through a limited season in your life. Nathan shared um, a story, uh, no, sorry, a part, a part of scripture um, in our prayer meeting. He shared the story in, in John about whether the, the disciples are fishing and they're not catching anything. And then Jesus from the shore says, hey, just throw over your nets to the other side. And they throw over the nets and they catch an absolute abundance of fish that it almost sinks the boat. I was thinking as well this week about the, the feeding of the 5,000. This is a bit of a Sunday school preach here this morning, but the feeding of the 5,000, if you know about it, it's Jesus was just going through a very hard time. His, his, his best friend was beheaded, all these other things, and then he encounters a crowd that he just views with compassion. It says in Matthew 14, it says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was even, evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds to go away into the village to buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. It says, they said, we only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them to me. Verse 19, he says, then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves, you know, this thing that he could hold in one hand, these little five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and then he broke the loaves and gave it to his disciples. And you know the rest of the story that the, the, the crowd was met with compassion and, and their hunger was met. I want to say like in this topic of like kingdom productivity, this topic of kingdom fruitfulness. We can feel like we have nothing to give. We can see a city that the desperate needs around us are way too massive for us to meet just with the, the, the little meager offering that we have. But I want to say that a little bit of provision plus faith in God, times by God himself, can do anything. There is no limit to the amount of people that Jesus can feed through you if you submit the little thing that you have to him. God can bless it and he can sow it and it can keep on going. Jesus did a few things, or if we learn a few things from this, he's like he saw with compassion. Jesus stopped and he saw a crowd and he had compassion on them. We need to ask, what is God's heart for a situation where we are stopping, looking on a situation and we see it with compassion? We need to bring our little offering to Jesus. We need to ask him to bless it. And then we need to expect that it's abundantly effective to God's kingdom. And it doesn't matter if you're busy at school, busy at work, busy at home with family, all these other things, no matter where your life is. Again, I guess 90% of the people here this morning would characterize their lives as extremely busy. But the other thing, like Jesus, is true, that you're probably surrounded by people who Jesus looks on with compassion with. And Jesus is asking us, do not send them away somewhere else. Jesus is saying, what do you have what do you have that you can give to me that I might feed them? We're just going to close here. Nate, do you want the band up or do you? Yeah? So if the, Lucas and the band, can you come back up? How many of you have heard about what's happening down at Asprey University in the States? Yeah, it's exciting. There was a sure hat over there. Wow, that's good for a Canadian church. Love that. Someone, someone shouted out in praise earlier. That was awesome as well. I love that. 
It's great. And it's been interesting to see, I, you know, tune in and out of what's going on there. I don't, I'm not too certain, like, okay, we must follow what they're doing, all this other stuff. And, but I was challenged here two weeks ago, I think I, I, I looked, and I'm just like, I wonder how this thing started. I wonder what, what's going on here. And it's a funny story of how this revival started. And again, we can get caught up in what is revival, what's not revival, all this other stuff. Like, basically, we look to the fruit of what happens but the interesting thing with how this revival started down in the States in this last month on February 8th, I think, I think it was this Wednesday, and they had, they had this Wednesday morning chapel service. And you can go online, you can look at it. You can, you can look at the service that happened just before the revival broke out and started. This guy called Zach was preaching. He's probably about my age. He had kids and a wife, and he shared what I would say was a pretty ill-prepared message. He didn't have a bunch of topics. He spoke for about 20 minutes. He talked about his, his day, other things like that. And he, he was basically just challenging the students, basically saying that some of you have not felt the love of Jesus in the correct way. Some of you have just experienced the wrong type of love. But there was something that he said during, the, during his thing about what he wanted to happen after the service. And again, if you go watch this thing, he, he, wasn't taught, he wasn't yelling, he wasn't shouting, he wasn't putting on a big display. If anything, this revival that's happening down in Asprey is like the opposite of Christian production, right? It's the opposite of Christian commercialism. It's like the no-name brand of Christian revival because God's just pouring out through very unexpected people. But he said this during his preach, and the thing that hit me and the, the way in which the, the revival started afterwards is he said this. He said about two-thirds of his way through his preach, he said, I have nothing on this afternoon uh, until when I have coffee with a dude. Um, until then, I'm happy to sit here and pray with you. That's what he said. He said, this afternoon, I have coffee with someone. But until then, which was probably about four or five hours away, I've got time here to sit with you and pray. And if you know anything about how the revival started, that's exactly how it started. It didn't start through a grand message. It didn't start through an amazing set of bullet points. It didn't start through a, charisma, a very extremely charismatic organization that, that got everybody to their feet roaring with passion. No, it came by a guy saying, I don't have anything on for a few hours. I'd love to sit and pray with you. And the story is, is that as a small group of students, they worshipped a bit after the service, and the worship team packed up, and they went away. And a small group of students stayed praying with Zach. And afterwards, the worship team returned, and they were still praying. And they started to share testimonies, and then they started worshipping. And then this service, this worship service, just would not end. I want to say the challenge for us, church, we're praying for revival, right? <laughs> We're praying for God's spirit to be poured out on Nanaimo. But the starkness of how this revival started in North America by just a guy saying, I've got time to pray with you. And church, we need to be available like Jesus was available. Zach, in the closing of his message, just displayed a Jesus-like trait to those people who were before him. I've got time for you. I wanna pray for you. I wanna see you healed. And out of that place, God poured out his lavishness on that place. And many hundreds of thousands of people, people from South America have sold their cars to fly up to be a part of it, all this other thing. 
God is challenging us. There's even a story from Zach where he actually, after the service, called his wife and just said, oh, it didn't go very well. I, you know, I just kind of fumbled through my notes. You know, Wednesday morning chapel service with a bunch of university students. I just kind of fumbled through it. Not knowing that Jesus was starting a revival after his humble offering of the little he had to be poured out upon the people. Man, I would love to see a hundredfold planting of seed and sowing in Nanaimo. If we had a hundred Oceanside churches, we still wouldn't be close to, to reaching the whole city. But God says it can happen. God says that where His soil is good, that where His seed falls, that it can grow and it can grow abundantly. And even if you're like us on sleepless nights, feeling like you've come to the end of what you can offer, Actually, that little thing given to Jesus with the time for that person who's in front of you can change their lives and can make a move of God. Can't make a move, you can't make a move of God, but can enable a move of God to flood into a needy city. I'm gonna invite Nathan up here and we're gonna turn to worship. Thank you, church.